Hey, another great episode of Roundup is coming up next. If you like what you heard, please go online to redsearadio.org and donate, become a monthly sustaining member, and keep us on the air. Thank you and God bless. Good morning, Central Texas. Good morning, Palestine. Good morning, Brazos Valley. This is your host for Wednesday, February 9th, 2022, Thaddeus Romanski. I'm filling in for the time being with a great, lovable, irascible maybe? Gene Wilhelm. He will be missed. He had a great run, brought us some great guests. I hope that I can fill his shoes to some degree. I'll do my best. I know that I can make a good college try at that because I'm joined by Dennis Maka on the board. Good morning, good morning, good morning. Yeah, it, Gene uh, put in his letter of resignation, though I don't know if there is such a thing when you're just doing a volunteer work. We we offered to pay him double what we were giving him, which is nothing. Yep. I'd give him two hugs maybe when he arrived to the yep. studio, but he didn't want it. So yep. Gene is uh, having to simplify his life, and uh, we can't blame him because I think we all need to do that. But uh, Gene felt his time came to a, a, a nice conclusion, and we wanted to, to wish him a, a, a fond farewell. He's he's still around the studio coming to visit, but he wanted to, to go ahead and, and uh, retire from his volunteer work with the radio station. So Gene Wilhelm, man— we salute you and thank God for you and all God you've bless been you, able Gene. to give us. So. God bless you, Gene. So, hey, yeah. if you want to be a part of the program today, you can call in at 85-LOVE-RED-SEA. That's 855-683-7332. And in a matter of fact, we actually have someone who's called in at that number. It happens to be our Director of Outreach and Evangelization, Robin Waters. How are you doing, Robin? Good morning, guys. How are y'all today? We're great. We're going we're gonna to come back to you and let us... Uh, hear from you about some things in the central Texas area, but speaking about simplifying life, Dennis, uh, simplify your life this weekend, folks, if you're in the Brazos Valley. Come by St. Anthony's Spaghetti Dinner. Mm, I'll be there. It is Sunday, February 13th, 2022, Malinowski Center on 29th and Sims, St. Anthony's Spaghetti Dinner 2022, adults $12, children $10, plates to go from 9.30 to 2 p.m., or you can dine in 10.30 to 2. Go order, get a bunch. They sell out. They sell out Pre-order your meatballs year. and your sauce. That's why you want to pre-order your meatballs or your sauce. However, I'm looking at this. It's, it's already too late. too late. Yeah, it's too late, I thought. February 7th was the deadline to pre-order. It, so, is, it is a wonderful dine-in treat, and I think they feed something like 3,000 people. I mean, it's a lot. And it's very good. Yeah, very tasty. It's a lot. It, it may not be that much. I may be exaggerating that, but they, it's it's close to three thousand people that they uh, they feed every year, and uh, it's going to be in person, and, and it's going to be wonderful, folks. So go to go to nine a.m. mass or ten ten a.m. mass at St. Anthony's, and come over to the Malinowski Center this Sunday, February thirteenth. St. Anthony's famous spaghetti dinner. It is famous around here, that's for sure. People come from all over to, to come back for this this wonderful Sicilian feast. So, mm-hmm. And I mentioned uh, simplifying your life. 
simplifying your life. Also, come and simplify your family's life by getting back to and adhering more to the truth that our Catholic faith teaches us about our human sexuality and the theology of the body from Pope St. John Paul II. There is the purified event with Jason Everett, nationally recognized. Worldwide known. This guy is known worldwide. Excuse me. Is this what it's going to be like? Yeah. You correcting me all the time while I'm well, you in the You invited me chair? to the mic? Okay. I just, I'm trying to get my head wrapped around that. <laughs> um, Maybe I should let Robin do that. <laughs> so that's Thursday, February 15th from 6 to 8 p.m. in St. Joseph's Christ the Good Shepherd Chapel in Bryan. Uh, if you live in the central Texas area, if you live over in Palestine, uh, this is worth coming over to. I know it's a Thursday night, but we highly, highly recommend you coming and hearing from Jason Everett uh, give this purified presentation. It's a family-based event that invites parents as well as teenagers to, like I said, learn about God's plan for human sexuality. He's going to give his presentation, but there's also going to be prayer, adoration, reconciliation available for your whole family. And there will be materials, educational and spiritual materials uh, to go home with you, every attendee, if you come to Purified with Jason Everett. Our whole Tickets, Maka family has signed up, so yes. we're looking forward to seeing you. Tickets are available at chastityproject.com slash purified, chastityproject.com slash purified. So that's that's two kind of big events, one hospitality event and one Oh, this just handed me. Okay, I'll have to double check on that. We'll get back to you about that. We'll get back to you about that. Um, <laughs> Breaking news. Uh, so we've got, we've got Purified coming up next week. We've got St. Anthony's Spaghetti Dinner on Sunday. Robin Waters, give us a little bit of uh, news. What's going on in Central Texas? You know, things are really uh, picking up here in this area. Parishes are... Uh, starting to have more and more events and fundraisers and things. Uh, uh, on Wednesday, February the 23rd, <clears throat> excuse me, Immaculate Heart of Mary in Abbott is going to have a drive-through hamburger supper uh, that's going to support their religious education department. And it's hard to believe, but for six bucks, you get a hamburger, fries, and a dessert. You can't even go to Whataburger and no. get that for six bucks. Not even and close. Plus, it's going to be better. Yeah, they, they do excellent there in Abbott. Uh, on the 27th, uh, which is Sunday the 27th, the uh, Nativity of the Blessed Virgin Mary in Penelope is going to have their fried chicken and sausage dinner. And that includes sauerkraut, parcel potatoes, all the trimmings. And if you've never been to a dinner at Penelope, again, they know how to do it right. So think about uh, helping those folks out <clears throat> up in a uh, and here in West, where I live, on Sunday, March 6th, uh, CDA Court Sacred Heart 829 is going to have a grilled chicken dinner. And this is a big event that they have over at the KC Hall. So remember that date, March 6th, uh, Sunday, March 6th. And, yeah, it's going to be delicious and entertaining and fun. Take, take advantage of that. 
also wanted to mention that last night I was able to go to the uh, kickoff event for 40 Days for Life up here in Central Texas, and Abby Johnson spoke. First time I've ever heard her speak, and she was awesome. I mean, she lived the whole Planned Parenthood experience. And so when she speaks, it's so authentic and so powerful. It's It was a great event. Uh, the, it was full. I mean, there was, I can say, probably three or 400 people there. Uh, wow. Very uplifting. They're uh, really trying to, to uh, encourage people to become sidewalk counselors because they still have some times that are, that are, well, they don't have a sidewalk counselor, and also folks that would like to volunteer to pray. So that was a that was a great event. Event enjoyed it, and the actual vigil kicks off on Ash Wednesday. So uh, I'm going to be going up there on on Wednesday morning, Dennis. Just so you know, 8 a.m. I'm going to pray uh, for the uh, for the end of abortion. Thank in, you. Uh, in our area, at least. Yes. But. Uh, and then also a really cool event that's going to be happening at St. Jerome, March 13th through 16th, is they're having a mission. Deacon Ralph Poyo from New Evangelization Ministries is going to be there. Really dynamic speaker. I've heard a lot of great things about him. The theme is going to be Call to the Deep. And the really neat thing about their mission is that every night they have dinner, which is free. So all you have to do is register so they know at stjeromewaco.org, so they know how many people are going to be coming. But not only do you get to go have a great inspirational uh, talk, you get free dinner. So oh, man. Got a lot going on up here. There's a lot of dinners going up in Central Texas. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of opportunities mm-hmm. to eat in our listening areas if yes. you combine them all together. <laughs> great things going <laughs> on. Thanks, advantage. Robin, for, for that lowdown for Central Texas. And, uh, you know, a lot of things going on. Get back out into the public, folks, and uh, enjoy your Catholic faith with all your fellow families and friends. Robin, thank you for checking in with us. And we're going to, we've got about five minutes here. I wanted to uh, say, gears a, say a a, bit. yeah, just sh- say a few words that uh, yesterday was the feast day of St. Josephine Bakita. Maybe Robin wants to weigh in on this too. I don't know. Um, that is a special day in our family because we have our littlest child who's outside of the womb. Uh, is Josephine. And so yesterday was her name day. She asked for a chocolate cake with pink frosting, and her older sister delivered. And so we had cake last night. It was really delicious. Uh, St. Josephine Bakita, if you don't know anything about her, she was born in the 1860s in Sudan, uh, Darfur, Sudan, as a matter of fact, which was in the news many years ago as a as a site of refugee um, and and violence in, in Sudan during their civil war. She was kidnapped as a nine-year-old, sold by Muslim slave traders into slavery, sold five times. Eventually, she came to be bought by an Italian merchant, and she was returned to Venice. And while there, she... Got, uh, got entrusted to some Catholic nuns there, and she became a, a part of their community. And I love this quote that we have from her. Um, I am definitely loved, and whatever happens to me, I am awaited by this love, and so my life is good. Ugh. Here, thinking about Christ, that he's awaiting us, uh, awaiting, wanting, wanting us to 
to be with him in heaven. That really touched my soul. And the re- the reflection that we were praying on last night went on to use her life as a chance to say that all of us have imperfections. This this valley of tears that we live in is a is a world of imperfection. Um, the perfect is the enemy of the good. But God's idea of perfection is like an oyster and a pearl. Oysters turn irritants into pearls. Oysters have an amazing defense mechanism, you see. It accepts the irritant, embraces it, and then it creates a pearl sack with its tears, transforming the irritant into a pearl. Without the irritant or the imperfection, the oyster can't make the pearl. And so looking at it that way, imperfection is part of God's plan to transform us. What do you think about that deacon-to-be Robin Waters? Oh, I guess he's gone away. Moved to tears. (laughs) I'm not a deacon. Uh, move, I'm here. Move to uh, silence. I'm here. I, I had it on silence, so I wasn't going to interrupt your. <laughs> oh, okay. Okay. Uh, analogy there, but uh, deacon. I mean, uh, Saint Josephine Paquita. She was just an awesome saint, and as you you told her bio, I mean, I know in mass yesterday, Father focused on her. I, I went to Saint Jerome's yesterday evening, and uh, Father James had a beautiful story about her. So. Uh, and she is also the namesake of my granddaughter. That's so, right. That's right. So, uh, yeah, wonderful saint and amazing after what she had been through that she can still, yeah. you know, look in, look upon the Lord in love. Yeah, and re- resting in the fact that he's awaiting her, wants her to be in heaven, and accepting her imperfections and turning those into to virtues. And that's that's what we all need to do. All of us have imperfections. All of us have irritants. All of us have suffering. But we can transform those through God's grace into the virtues of patience, charity, hope. Right? Amen. And you think if you think about it too, if, if you don't have the irritants, then how are you going to grow? Exactly. How are you going to grow in the Lord if you're just everything's uh, just hunky dory all the time? Right, because then you don't have to depend on Him. Well, that's why I'm here, folks, go. to irritate you and tell you we're coming up on a break. That's right. That's why Dennis is constantly going to be correct me, tell correcting us me all the briefly time. Briefly about that. Joe Heschmeyer's coming yeah, right he, up. Yeah, he's got a great book out. The early church was the Catholic church. We're going to talk all about that next. Robin, thanks so much for being on. Stay tuned, folks. We'll be back on the other side. All right, welcome back to Red Sea Roundup. I'm your host, Thaddeus Romanski. You're listening to Red Sea Catholic Radio, KDC 88.5 FM in the Brazos Valley, KYAR 98.3 FM in Central Texas, and KINF 107.9 FM in Palestine. And you can call in today at 85-LOVE-RED-SEA, 855-683-7332. If you want to ask our guest a question, 
Our guest is none other than Joe Heshemeyer, one of the great apologists at Catholic Answers. We got him up early this morning. It's not that early on the, on the West Coast, but it is, it's a little bit earlier. Good morning, Joe. Thanks for being with us. <laughs> great to be here. And actually, I'll have you know, I, I had an interview this morning at 545, so you're not, wow. not doing me any disservice by having me do one at 915. <laughs> okay, great. Well, good good job, man. Way to be up, way, way to be up and at him. Um, I imagine they were... Maybe they were talking to you about the your new book, uh, the book that we're going to discuss today. It's called "The Early Church Was the Catholic Church." You can get it at store.catholic.com. That's correct. I'm oh, sorry, shop.shop.shop.catholic.com. Shop. Shop. Pick it up there, and also it can be picked up anywhere else. Fine books are sold. Yes. Uh, yeah, exactly. Um, your local Catholic bookstore hopefully will have it too. Mm-hmm. Uh, I will say shop.catholic.com. We have a bulk sale going right now. If you want to get like 20 copies, if you you know for your parish or if you're in a you know a men's group or a women's group or something, for I think three dollars a copy, which is a, I think a pretty good deal. Yeah, I was going to mention that this is a great book for a maybe a Lenten book study if someone was thinking about about doing that. Um, it's it's very readable. It's not. It's not a terribly long book, and it's uh, it's entertainingly written. You keep you keep our attention, and you you constantly uh, are pointing us in the direction that you're going, and you lay out your your argument, you know, very well. So, kudos to you. Oh, thank you very much. Appreciate that. Um, Joe, start by t- telling us how you came to be an apologist for Catholic Answers, and were you raised as a Catholic, or are you an adult convert? Um, it's a little bit tricky. I was raised as a Catholic, but I didn't know that much about the faith. You know, we went to Mass on Sunday, and my parents took uh, being Catholic Christians seriously, but we, did, we didn't live in a very uh, good age of catechesis or apologetics or anything. You know, I was born in 85, mm. so it's not great years for formation of the faith. And Catholic Radio, I don't know if we had Catholic Radio in Kansas City where I grew up, um, we had Protestant radio, and we listened to a ton of that. So I had kind of a weird hodgepodge hmm. of kind of Catholic theology and Protestant theology mixed together without really understanding that there was this kind of mixture. Mm-hmm. And so beginning in college, there was a real process of figuring out what do Catholics believe, why do they believe it, and do I believe that thing? So I felt like there was kind of a process of converting to the faith, even though I was already a Catholic on paper. Mm-hmm. Um as for becoming an apologist for Catholic Answers, I guess that's really the second step of the journey in a certain way. After college, I went to law school and just kept finding out more and more stuff about Catholicism. Okay. And I just kept sharing it with my friends and family and, you know, oftentimes people who weren't asking to have these conversations. <laughs> and I feel like I was being kind of annoying. Uh-huh. So I actually created a blog just to have an outlet so I could, like, talk about this stuff without driving people nuts. Uh, and it, it kind of took off the blog shameless popery and yes. it, it got fairly popular. And I, there was no really looking back from there. I sort of told myself at the beginning, I would do it until I got bored of it or ran out of things to talk about. And neither of those things have happened. Uh, mm-hmm. so years and years down the road, I, I became a lawyer. I became a seminarian. I started working for another Catholic group and, uh, Catholic answers offered for me to come aboard. And at this point I was already, you know, writing magazine articles for them and uh, doing as much stuff as I could with Catholic Answers in my free time, even like going on Catholic Answers live occasionally, mm-hmm. and that it was really just a question of, well, you know, all that stuff you're doing for free or really cheap, would you like us to start paying you so you could do it more often? And that yeah, that's was nice. the easiest 
discernment in the world. Yeah. yeah. So now, as a Catholic Answers apologist on Catholic Answers Live, which you can hear from 5 to 7 p.m. on your favorite Catholic radio station, Red Sea Catholic Radio, um, this is like a dream job for you, because these people actually want to have these conversations that you want to have, right? They're coming to you instead of you having to go to them. Exactly. It Actually, it's really funny, because you know, I, I think it's probably the same way down in Texas. In the Midwest, we just have such a culture of politeness mm-hmm. that people are very apologetic to ask any question about why you're Catholic if they're not. Mm-hmm. They're like, oh, I hope I'm not offending you. I'm like, you get that this is literally my job. Like, you know, <laughs> someone be like, if you went to your insurance salesman, like, I hope I'm not boring you and asking about insurance. Like, no, no, like, it's, it's okay. This is, you know, I, I have a big you can ask me these questions kind of thing on my, yeah, like that, that. hopefully people feel comfortable having the conversations. I love having these conversations. Well, that that's kind of a and neat, it's, it's something that's really enriching. That's yeah. kind of a neat place to, to transition to talking about the book, because the next place I wanted to go was, you know, why would a person of goodwill believe that the early church wasn't the Catholic church? I mean, probably some of us have heard that if you ask Siri or Alexa, who founded the Catholic church, they'll respond with Jesus Christ. But if you ask about the founder of any Protestant denomination, that's not the answer that you're going to get. But um, why would somebody who's seeking the truth nevertheless believe that the early church wasn't the Catholic Church? I think there's a few reasons. Uh, Maybe the most common reason is simply lack of knowledge about the early church. Uh, You can find a lot of people who have never seriously looked at the early Christians or even worse, you'll find people who actively misrepresent the early Christians. So if you're listening to certain Protestant speakers and what their representation of the Church Fathers and the pre-Reformation Christians in general are like, it'd be easy to come away with the view that for about 300 years everything was really good, and then you had a slow decline into Catholicism, and all the Catholic distinctives, these are all invented somewhere along the way. And then the Reformers just set the clock back to 300 or to 100 or to the time of the Apostles. And it's a neat story. It is just not historically true. Mm. Uh, but if if all you know is people telling you that story, it's totally understandable someone would believe that. I think a, a second reason is that there are things that look different, that you will find differences in certainly how the Church looks. And of course, right, you go right. from a Church of 120 people in an upper room to one point some odd billion people, it's going to be a lot more complicated. It's going to be a lot bigger. It's going to speak a lot more languages. It's going to, you know, everything about it. And the way communication happens now is radically different than the way it happened in the first century. You wouldn't have this conversation going on by radio and by phone. You know, all of these things are, are very different. And Jesus tells us back in Matthew 13 that the mustard seed is going to grow into a mustard tree. But you still have a lot of Protestants who expect the Church to look like a mustard seed, mm. that expect everything to be as, as small and pristine as, as they imagined it was in the, the early days. But we were never meant to stay a seed. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the Church looks grown up. And so in that sense, she doesn't look in every way the way she looked as a kid. There's, there's a family resemblance. You can still see, oh, yeah, that was the younger version of the Church. But you, you, there are some certainly superficial differences. Uh, and then I think the, the third thing is just people have uh, kind of a different theology of church, where a lot of people assume the church is just a collection of believers. And so from that perspective, to say the early church was the Catholic church doesn't make sense to them. It'd be like saying, you know, this group of people is an institution. It, it, like, it, there's just kind of a misunderstanding of the idea of church. 
So yeah. purposely, one of the things I, I try to do in the book is, is look at what the early Christians thought was needed for you to have a church. Okay. Um, let's, let's go there. What, what did they think a church was supposed to be? What were the kind of necessary elements of, of a church? Yeah, so the, the most famous person to talk about this is St. Ignatius of Antioch. And he mentions that you need a bishop, presbyters, we'd now say priests, and deacons. And without that, you don't have the church. You don't have the Catholic Church. Uh, you don't have, you know, just the church. He's, he's the first person in history to use the phrase Catholic Church that we know of. Mm-hmm. Um, and he's very clear that it's not just individual Christians or two or three Christians gathered together in prayer, that the church from the earliest Christian understanding was something much more structured, mm-hmm. that it was certainly the laity in communion with the hierarchy, mm-hmm. but there's an institutional structured uh, dimension to the church. So when we say the church is a body, we mean a body with a backbone and with organs and with structure. Mm-hmm. Uh, or like it, when we say the church is a city on a hill, we mean it's a society and a visible one. That's why it's on the hill. And so for all of those reasons, the, the biblical and early Christian view is that the church is a structured society, and that structure includes a bishop at the top of each city or of each diocese, uh, accompanied by priests and deacons. Yeah, I, I confess I was not familiar with the terms that you used several times throughout the chapter on the church of a two-tiered church versus a three-tiered church. You just explained what the three-tiered church structure looks like. What are what are Protestant critics talking about when they are arguing, no, 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 the early church was a two-tiered church, and then Catholics kind of invented this three-tiered structure? Yeah, so there are a lot of different Protestant visions of what they think the Bible teaches the church looks like. I, I highlight like six different ones in the book, mm-hmm. but one of the most common ones, and the one that I interact with the most, is that two-tiered structure where you have elders or presbyters and then deacons. And so they don't think there's a difference, that when the Bible describes bishops and when it describes elders, they think those are two different names for the same office. Okay. And so you wouldn't have one bishop at the head of a church, you would just have like a group of elders at the head. Okay, okay. And but that, that's not what, what the early Christians meant by it, or how they understood the terms. Okay, and that's because sometimes they use—because they use the word episkopos, and they use the word— Pres- presbyteros, and then there was the diakonos, right? Are those the three the, mm-hmm. the three Greek terms? Run yep, through exactly. those for our our listeners. So uh, episkopos, where we get words like episcopal, like episcopal motto, uh, it's the word for bishop, and it literally means overseer. Mm-hmm. Uh, presbyteros literally means elder, and, and it's where we get the English word priest. Uh, and then diakonos is, of course, where we get the word deacon. It literally means servant. Um, so those are the the kind of terms of art in terms of describing those three tiers. But what makes it confusing is that sometimes they'll also use those same words when they're not describing the office. Mm-hmm. So uh, St. Paul refers to himself as a diaconos. He's a servant of Christ. And he, you know, Christ can speak of himself as a servant. And he speaks of the apostles as servants. And they speak of Phoebe, who, you know, one of the women in Rome as a servant. Mm-hmm. And they're not describing any of them as deacons. Meanwhile, conversely, kind of humorously, when the first seven deacons are called in Acts 6, they're clearly deacons, but they're not actually called that in the text. You might see the header that says the calling of the first deacons, mm-hmm. but the text itself doesn't use the word diaconos to describe them. 
Right. So this is what makes it really confusing and why there are so many different Protestant structures is that Scripture doesn't just lay out an instruction plan for how to build a church. And I think the reason for that is really simple, which is that the church is already there. By the time St. Paul is writing his letters, right. he's writing them to existing churches. He's not saying, here's how to build a church, because they already know. Right. Uh, so, it, you know, when we try to, like, reverse engineer the thing 2,000 years later, it's, it's not very effective, because we're, we're trying to build something that already existed before Scripture, trying to use Scripture alone as, as kind of the, the blueprint. Right, and so this kind of goes into the importance of capital T tradition, oral and oral tradition, and the fact that, like you said, the apostles, after Jesus's ascension and then Pentecost, they're there on the ground building the, the kingdom, so to speak, how how many years before we have the first New Testament scriptures? How how long before the, the canonical scriptures? Well, yeah, it's a really good question. In terms of the New Testament text, there's a lot of controversy about the dating. Um, oftentimes, people say the 40s or 50s are the first letters of Paul. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you take the date, that anywhere from like 10 to 20 years, but that's going to be your early end. Some people are going to put those even a little later, mm-hmm. but you still have a decent chunk of time. I mean, think about the book of Acts, for instance. Right. Obviously, everything described in Acts has already happened before the book. Correct. Uh, you, you know, it's not like the, he's writing it all down in real time. He's right. looking back on years and years worth of events. Uh, that's how the New Testament works. It, uh, this is, uh, you know, sometimes people have this idea of a game of telephone, like one person says something to, you know, the next person, they, they maybe get it correct, or maybe they mess up the message a little bit and they pass it on to the next one. That's not really how it was, that it's much more like there's an entire society of Christians from the very beginning, mm-hmm. small society, but then a, a larger and larger one, who are very publicly living out their, their Catholic faith. And that society grows. And it's a good check, because if someone tries to introduce a false teaching, you've got a group of people there who already know, hey, that's not true. Uh, and they have something to check it against. Yeah, you made a point that... Uh the early Christians were sort of hypersensitive about something that was an innovation or something that didn't have uh, a tradition of years behind it, that that was maybe their first question that they asked is, okay, well, what's the, what's the kind of genealogy of this, of this idea? Talk about that. Yeah, one of the best quotations for this comes a little later. So in the book, I'm looking at really the first 200 years. Uh, St. Jerome is writing after that. He's writing in the 4th century. So he's later than the scope of the book, but I can't resist how well he captures the sort of spirit of the early church mm-hmm. and what you might call theological conservatism. Now, I'm saying that I don't mean like politically conservative. I mean like resistant to any kind of new innovation, any kind of new idea, because right. they were all about, as the Epistle to Jude says, contend for the faith delivered once for all to the apostles. If someone comes along and says, we've got another testimony of Jesus Christ, like the Mormons say, well, you can know out the gate that's false, because we're told this is it, once for all. That's mm-hmm. what it means, mm-hmm. once for all. So St. Jerome says this. He says, we ought to remain in that church, which was founded by the apostles and continues to this day. If ever you hear of any that are called Christians, taking their name, not from the Lord Jesus Christ, but from, 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 excuse me, from some other, for instance, Marcionites, Valencians, Men of the Mountain or the Plain, 
and we could add here Lutherans, Calvinists, and the rest, right? Because they're taking their name from someone other than Christ. Right. You may be sure that you have there not the Church of Christ, he would say, but the synagogue of Antichrist. For the fact that they took their their rise after the foundation of the church is proof that they are those whose coming the apostles foretold. Now, that is stronger language than we would probably use today, but it's important to note what he's saying. He's saying, you know, it's very much the test you just laid out with Siri. Mm-hmm. You know, if, uh, if we know who founded your church and it wasn't Jesus Christ, you're not the real deal. So Siri and Alexa have been Christ. reading, uh, they've been reading... Jerome, uh, Jerome. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, there, there really is, it's funny because he is using that same standard of if we can trace this to its origin, we can prove its falsity. And he then goes on to say... It doesn't do you any good if you think you have scripture on your side, because the devil can quote scripture. Right. And so we've got no reason to believe you. If all you have to go on is, well, this is what scripture means to me. Show me that there's an unbroken tradition of people always understanding scripture in that way. And then it's not just your personal interpretation, that this is what the church has always believed the scripture meant. And if you Show me the money, Jerry. Then I don't believe it. Exactly. <laughs> um, yeah, and so that that goes to your point also about how there wasn't enough time for there to for heresy to creep in either. Not only were the early Christians very very aware that uh, that innovations were not going to be uh, kosher, but there wasn't there wasn't the time for some kind of slow uh, infiltration of innovative ideas to happen because it was only a couple. We're, we're in living memory. Talk about that that idea of living memory of the apostles, um, of how, how that shaped yeah, the early church. So it, it really is, the, I'm responding to this idea that heresy kind of crept in slowly over time. We can't say who did it or when, right. but eventually there's this sort of slow evolution. And, and it, you need a long timeline for that. It's the same reason, like, there's a big debate, you know, but if you have a 5,000-year-old earth, you don't have enough time for biological evolution. Well, here it is in the church. If you have 200 years of church history you're dealing with, there's not enough time for theological evolution to invent some new religion with some new doctrines. Um, The Apostle John dies about the year 100, and he has a couple of pretty famous students. uh, St. Ignatius of Antioch, who I mentioned before about the three-tier structure of the church, and St. Polycarp of Smyrna. Polycarp was born in 69. He was about 31 when John died. He lived to 86. So he dies in 155. Mm. Um, We have the account of his martyrdom from within a year. And we know that he had a couple of students of his own. The most famous one is St. Irenaeus of Lyon. Mm -hmm. And his book, Against Heresies, is written in 180. So by the time you're at 180, and, and Irenaeus dies probably about 202. So until the end of the two, until the end of the second century, to about the year two hundred, you literally have Christians who personally heard the gospel from people who were students of the apostles. Mm-hmm. That they didn't hear it directly from the apostles; they heard it from people formed by the apostles and formed for years by the apostles. So if Irenaeus wanted to know what did John mean in John six, or what does Jesus mean in John six, he could ask Polycarp who knew John, who, right. who would have been able to ask that question himself. So it, it, that's the idea of living memory, that you or I picking up the book, trying to figure out what it means. We don't have anyone who is there we can consult. But the Christians until about the year 200 did have that, and especially these kind of prominent theologians who were uh, you know, students 
of the apostles or students of students of the apostles. That's what I mean by living memory, that you could appeal to just, this isn't what Polycarp thought John meant, and that was enough to uh, kind of shut down the question of what did John mean. Yeah, so you had you had living memory of people who knew the people who worked with, worked with Jesus, lived with Jesus, and on top of that, they were very sensitive to uh, the accuracy of what was being handed on, that it was not being handed on uh, and being corrupted as that as that happened, correct? That's how those two things yeah, kind of so fit anyone, together. Anyone claiming that a, a false teaching doesn't just get introduced, but takes over the church, becomes like the normative view in the church, has to say that either under the watch of the Apostle John, or St. Polycarp, or St. Irenaeus, that some false teaching came in and wasn't opposed by any of these guys, and and then overtook orthodoxy, overtook like the true belief or the church set up by Christ. And the obvious question is, well, why didn't they say anything? I mean, as I already mentioned, Irenaeus literally has a book called Against Heresies. The guy mm-hmm. is not just going to say, well, you believe whatever you want. Correct. He's cracking down on false belief. So a Protestant saying false belief entered the church during this time, why wasn't it opposed by the true believers? Yeah, and so from so you, this is your sort of argumentative uh, framework, or at least the foundation for the argument you make. And then you have four chapters where you look at different aspects of the early church. Uh, we've got about 20 minutes left. Um, you deal with sort of the conservation of theological belief, and you do that with baptism. Why is it so important to get the truth about baptism correct? Yeah, uh, if <laughs> if it's true that baptism saves us, then baptism is a critically important doctrine. Mm-hmm. If baptism is just a symbol, then yeah, feel free to put it off. Don't don't rush to get baptized. But if it's something where it actually is the difference between life and death, then you should get baptized as soon as you can. I mean, certainly prepare for it adequately, but be baptized as soon as you can, which is why we rush to get our children baptized. So all of those things flow from how, what we think is going on in baptism. Another way to think about it is uh, you've got a whole group of people who call themselves born-again Christians who don't understand what Jesus says about the need to be born again of water and the Spirit, according to the way every early Christian understood that passage, that no one in the early church uh, thinks being born again is making a personal commitment to Jesus Christ. Mm. That's just not the framework. And so that's a really bedrock, like, how do you become Christian kind of issue? What's the door to the church? And this is something on which, you know, Baptists, non-denominational, and other born-agains are totally at odds uh, with early Christianity. Yeah, yeah. And then you you move on to talk about the teaching on the Eucharist. And that's, that's your form, uh, that's your look at how, what was the form of worship for the early Christians? Um, give a couple of summary points about just the antiquity of belief in the Eucharist as the body and blood of Jesus Christ. Yeah, so it's, you know, we often will hear Catholics point out that you go back to Ignatius, and I've already mentioned him, you know, talking about how if the Smyrnians, uh, they can't have anything to do with the Gnostics, because the Gnostics abstain from the Eucharist and from prayer, because they confess not the Eucharist to be the flesh of our Savior Jesus Christ. And uh, he warns that the Gnostics incur damnation, 
in denying the real presence of the Eucharist. And it'd be better if, uh, like, we stayed away from them. It'd be better if they believed the truth about the real presence so they could rise again to eternal life. I mean, it's, it's a shocking kind of thing, because he's both saying this is a life or death teaching. Mm-hmm. And he's using it as a litmus test for orthodoxy. Hey, don't have anything to do with people who don't believe in the real presence, because mm. they can't be in our communion because they deny communion. Mm. So that's a major kind of point by 107. And I point out a couple different examples of early Christians in the 100s who use uh, Eucharistic teaching as a way to combat the heresy of Gnosticism. The Gnostics denied that Jesus had really come in the flesh because they thought the flesh was evil, and so they thought the Incarnation was just kind of uh, an apparition, that he wasn't really a human. And the early Christians responded by saying, well, if that were true, we wouldn't have the Eucharist. Right. And so it's really remarkable that the doctrine of the Eucharist was taken so much for granted that they could point to the fact that, well, if your view is true, we wouldn't have a, a real presence kind of Eucharist. Mm-hmm. And that was just enough to beat the argument. That was the ad absurdum, where now a lot of Christians would say, well, we don't have a real presence Eucharist. And so a Protestant in the early Church couldn't even make this argument, because a Gnostic would be fine saying Christ is spiritually present in the Eucharist, because they thought he was only spiritually present on earth. Right. So it's, it's a really remarkable kind of uh, insight into the Church. Additionally, they were really clear, even before Ignatius, going back to the Didache, which is probably like mid-first century, like around the time Scripture is being written, uh, refers to the Eucharist as a sacrifice. And uh, Martin Luther and John Calvin concede that everybody before them thought the Eucharist was a sacrifice, theologians and the laity, and the text of the Mass itself. Now, one reason that matters is that when Protestants try to claim the Church Fathers, there's something a little, I think, disingenuous about it. If you're claiming someone who worshipped Jesus Christ in the Eucharist and who prayed the Mass, and you think the Mass is like blasphemous, or you think it's re-sacrificing Christ, or you think it's not true Christian worship, you don't get to claim the people celebrating that Mass then as, as being on your team, because you, you reject their form of worship, which was the, the spiritual censure of their lives. Wow, these are these are just great insights to the early church. Something that's often a debate between Catholics and Protestants. You're listening to Joe Heschmeyer. His the he's the author of a new book, "The Early Church Was the Catholic Church." It's out from Catholic Answers Press. You can get it at shop.catholic.com. They have a bulk discount going today, and we are talking to him. We're got about 15 minutes left to go through some more of these great points in the book. Um, really enjoying this conversation, Joe. Thanks. Um, oh, thank you. I'm, I'm enjoying it as well. This, this, now, this led me to this discussion about, you got into, I think, in the second part of your chapter on the Eucharist, about the difference between the symbolic and the spiritual. And what that got me thinking about was, you know, that infamous Pew study that came out a few years ago saying that something like 70% of Catholics think the Eucharist is a symbol. Um, there's a lot of hand-wringing about that. But I, I felt like maybe you were giving us something to um, have some hope in, because um, I felt like we could take your discussion at the end of the chapter to say that maybe those responses on the study don't necessarily mean what we think they mean. Um, does that make sense? What what I'm asking, tease it, that it out. It does. I think I, I think I see where you're going with that. I, I hope you're right. I don't know. I mean, certainly the the Pew study, the way the question was formulated, wasn't great. 
Mm-hmm. And so some people may have just chosen the wrong answer because they were confused or because neither answer was really Catholic belief. Because mm-hmm. we believe that all the sacraments are what we would call efficacious signs, which just means signs that do things. Right. That the, the, to say that the sacraments are symbolic or to say that they are signs is totally true. They right. are. They're right. just not only that. Right. Um, you know, the the wedding is a sign of the marriage of the husband and wife, but it's not just a sign. It also is actually performing the thing that it symbolizes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's it, those kind of things. We have to not draw hard. Either it's literally true or it's symbolic or it's a sign. It could be both. And William Crockett has a book called Eucharist, uh, Symbol of Transformation. Okay. And she points out that in the ancient world, a symbol had almost the opposite meaning that it has to a lot of modern people. That ancient thought doesn't distinguish between symbol and reality, but instead, in antiquity, uh, the symbol is the presence of that which it represents and mediates participation in that reality. In other words, if you draw a circle on a piece of paper, that's both a symbol of a circle and a, in, in kind of an iteration of the reality of a circle. That you, you've literally got a circle there, but it's also pointing to something beyond itself. And the sacraments are understood in that way, that at the visible level, something is happening, uh, but it's pointing to something even greater happening at the invisible level, which we see only through the eyes of faith. Um, th- this is not one of the questions that I kind of went over with you in our, on our pre-meeting, but it just occurred to me, I wanted to ask you, when do we start to see um, veneration of the, the Eucharistic species or what, what became adoration? Because a lot of times that's also something that Protestants uh, and even the Reformers, I think, took, took issue with. Uh, yeah, there, well, the first step of that is bringing the Eucharist to the sick outside of the Mass. Okay. And we see that testified to by Justin Martyr uh, in his first apology in about 160. Now, that's a really important detail, because even a lot of Protestants have a higher Eucharistic theology than do, you know, like non-denominational Christians. Like, you'll find Christians who have just a purely symbol, that's it, kind of view, but then you'll find people like Lutherans who say that Christ is in with and under the bread and wine during the Mass or during the liturgy, but not afterwards. Mm -hmm. But that's not enough. Justin Martyr is sending communion to the sick outside of Mass. Right. So that shows us that the, the Eucharist is being preserved in, in some way after the liturgy. St. Tarsisius uh, is, probably, being, is being remembered and venerated yes. because he died to protect the Eucharistic species, right? Exactly. And, and so you certainly have the Eucharist outside of Mass there. Um, St. Basil may have a reference. I think this is disputed. And he's 4th century, so he's in the 300s. Mm-hmm. Uh, we don't know much outside of that. We know that the, uh, the monks who lived in the desert after desert monasticism begins, they would often have the Eucharist in their huts uh, because they, you know, they couldn't make it to Mass because they're in the middle of nowhere in the desert. So they would receive enough Eucharist for the week and, and live off their daily bread uh, kind of in that way. Wow. Wow. Now... I was not surprised that you dealt with the Eucharist. I wasn't surprised that you dealt with baptism. I, I wasn't really surprised that you dealt with ecclesiology, you know, church structure. <laughs> but I was surprised when I got to the chapter on the writings 
and you basically say, uh, okay, so how do we know that we have the right four Gospels? I felt like, wait, isn't that something that Catholics and Protestants actually agree on? Uh, haven't they conceded that to the Catholic Church, that the, the four Gospels are the are what what they're supposed to be? Um, that seems like, you know, checkmark in the early church was the Catholic Church side of the ledger. Why, why is that discussion instructive for demonstrating your larger point? Yeah, because when you look at why Protestants accept Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, it's because they think that they can trust the Christians of the second century. And so it's actually kind of funny. The first person to give us Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John as a, a full list is Irenaeus in 180. Mm. And he's at the tail end of kind of the fathers that we're looking at. Right. And so that creates an obvious problem. If you don't uh, think Irenaeus is trustworthy, then how do you know you can believe him when he tells you that these books were written by apostles or companions of the apostles? Mm -hmm. I know you can believe him when he says that these are in liturgical use, that these books are orthodox, uh, that these books are accepted by the other apostolic fathers. Like all of those ideas, those are the four tests used to determine if a book belongs or not. And uh, if you read Protestant books on this, I I quote uh, multiple Protestant books that look at how we can know Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are the right Gospels, and they all end up in the same place. And it involves trusting the second century fathers, which is a problem for Protestants because they don't trust the second century fathers on anything else of any of the issues that we've looked at. Mm -hmm. So uh, there's one particular issue that I look at in the book. It's uh, D.A. Carson or or Don Carson. He works at Gospel Coalition. He has a a pretty popular commentary. Did you say Johnny Carson? I did. I should have. I'm John Carson looking at John. So okay. It's an easy way to remember it. It's uh, John by Carson. Okay. Uh, but it's uh, when he's talking about the authorship of the Gospel of John, he says this thing about how Irenaeus in the 180s is the first to establish it. But he points out that because of his personal connection with Polycarp, who knew John, the distance in personal memory isn't very great. That's that point we made earlier about right. living memory, right? right. Like the line from. John to Polycarp to Irenaeus, it's not really particularly long. And it seems like a pretty trustworthy thing we can rely on. But then you get a little further into the book, and he gets to John 6, and he admits that the earliest Christians, namely people like St. Ignatius of Antioch, were sacramentarian. And that's a problem because Ignatius was a student of John's. He wasn't just early, but he was early and connected with the author of John 6. Right. And so he says, well, how, how could that be? How could... Uh, a contemporary and a disciple use that kind of language. And he says, well, anyone who's followed theological developments in the 20th century or in the 16th century or the first does not need convincing that major changes can be introduced in the space of 20 years, even by disciples of a revered leader. So hopefully you can see this is just flagrantly contradictory. Like he's saying the line from John to his own disciple Ignatius, eh, you can't really trust it, but... The line from John to his disciple to Polycarp to his disciple Irenaeus, well, that's close enough. You can trust that. It doesn't make any sense. Like he's he's saying you can trust the longer route, but not the shorter route. Um, and it, it's just okay. pretty much special pleading. Yeah. You know, that, that kind of argument that if you're going to take the Church Fathers seriously, because it's not just like Ignatius had this one weird view. It's like everybody viewed this. So if you don't believe that the Christians of the second century were reliable Orthodox Christians, mm-hmm. then you can't really look to them to know which books do and don't belong in the Bible. Yeah, but then 
aren't they kind of spinning back on themselves because they're they're trying to get back to the early church if they're having a problem with with the Catholic Church and the way it its beliefs and practices are today, correct? Yeah, well, this is where it gets kind of complicated, because the more Protestant scholars dig into them, the more they realize that the things that they view as corruption are earlier and earlier than were once thought. You know, that you can't say, oh, this is some error that was introduced by Constantine, when you see it in writings 200 years before Constantine. Hey, Joe, we've got a, uh, we've got a caller for you. Got somebody wants to ask All a right. question. Go ahead, caller. Um, Mr. Heschmeyer, I have a question about yes. um, your book. So I would like to know, where do the non-canonical books fit in in apostolic tradition in the, church, in the early church? Ah, that's a great question. So for anyone listening, uh, there are certain books that uh, were false gospels. You know, you have things like the Gospel of Thomas. It's not really written by Thomas. And uh, it's it's a second century, basically forgery, you know, that, that claims to be written by Thomas and teaches heretical doctrine. But you and so those ones are easy enough. And I, I address that in the book and that even uh, skeptical, like non-Christian scholars like Bart Ehrman will say that the four Gospels in the Christian Bible are, are the oldest ones. And one of the ways we know that is that they are anonymous internally, that Matthew, Mark, Luke and John don't identify themselves. That's a really weird detail to look to. But the idea is that when they're writing so early, it's like it didn't even occur to them that somebody might write false gospels under their names and and claim to be them, that they're just writing down what they saw Mm. and everyone knows it's coming from them. And and so they don't need to really claim their authority. But someone writing in the second century who wants to convince you it's from the first century can't write anonymously or else it just looks like a second century anonymous document. So if they're going to have it smuggled into the Bible, they need to talk about how, oh, I'm St. Peter, or I'm Andrew, or I'm, you know, fill in the blank. And, and so oh. the forgeries actually give themselves away by trying to pretend to be someone they're not, whereas the authentic documents, they're not trying to boast about who they are. So none of the Gospels announce their authorship, uh, whereas the false Gospels do that kind of thing frequently. Uh, but then the, the harder questions are when you have writings that are orthodox, they're not heretical, they're written by Christians, but then knowing whether or not they belong in Scripture or not. So like Pope Clement writes a letter to the Church of Corinth. It's good, but we don't have it in the Bible. So uh, there, that's where this fourfold test comes in. Was it written by an apostle or a companion of the apostle? Was it orthodox? Um, Was it used in the Mass? And then was it accepted by the earliest Christians? And so something like First Clement, outside of Corinth, isn't used in the Mass. Uh, and even though it's Orthodox, it's not written by an apostle, and it's not like a, a witness to apostolic uh, life. You know, it's not trying to be a gospel or anything like that. So it's a good letter, but we don't consider it inspired Scripture. Okay, so that caller. That kind of fourfold test is how we know. Thanks for, thanks for the call, and Joe... We're going to recommend that the caller get, you. your, get your book to learn more. We've got about two minutes. Okay. Yeah, that's, that, well, was, thank uh, you, caller. Yeah, <laughs> that was fun. Um, okay, so as we get down here to the end, I want you to, you know, if somebody got this book and they picked it up, what's, what's kind of the major takeaway you'd want them to 
use and to put into their apologetic quiver from this book? If you know, one thing, I think knowing, I'd say, I mean, it really is the title. The early church was the Catholic church that if, if you find someone who says they want to go back to the early Christians, you should really invite them to read the early Christians. And this book is a, a kind of an easy introduction to some of those writings. And then you can go from there. Okay. You heard it here. Encourage people to read the fathers. I think Jimmy Aiken's great book from a few years ago, uh, what the wisdom of the fathers or fathers know the best fathers, know best, fathers yeah. know best. That's a, also a nice place to get introduced to the writings of the church fathers and Joe Heschemeyer, early church was the Catholic Church. Thank you very, very much for being with us today. And what are you going to be working on next? Uh, I'm doing a 20 Answers guide, I think, for Catholic Answers. I've got a couple of video series, one on Mary and one on St. Peter. And then I've got another book that's going to be in the works after uh, the dust clears from all of that. All right. Well, we're going to keep, we're going to look forward to what you have. You've been listening to Red Sea Roundup. We were talking to Joe Heschemeyer. The early church was the Catholic Church. Get it at shop.catholic.com. And remember, when choosing between the values of heaven and the values of earth, always round up. Pam Marvin will be with you next week. Thanks so much for listening. Talking, I.